an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. It's Film Week on LA Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Claudia Puig, who's program director for the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, Wade Major of Synagogues.com, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the sci-fi action film The Creator. It's a futuristic war between humans and artificial intelligence. Claudia, what would you think of The Creator? Well, I liked aspects of it, mostly the visuals. Um, it's And it's also nice to see an ambitious original concept that isn't part of a franchise or an established IP, um, and one that's visually stunning, of course. It's just too bad the story was derivative and seemed to crib from so many other sci-fi epics um, like Blade Runner, Star Wars, Apocalypse Now, which isn't sci-fi, but um, Aliens, District 9, even Ex Machina and Lost Horizon. That's a lot of, <laughs> lot of films. That's a lot of cribbing. Yeah. Yeah. It's eclectic cribbing. Yes, it is. This sounds like Charles cribbing. reviewing latest animation <laughs> and all the stuff that's ripped off. Yeah, yeah, sadly. Um, but there is a bit to admire. Um, mostly those. Mostly it has to do with special effects and the CG. Um, it's a story of humans facing off against artificial intelligence, so that definitely has... Uh, has timeliness and also has glitches. Um, it's generally entertaining in the first third when the audience is being introduced to the characters and the concept and trying to sort of piece things together and admiring sort of the visual splendor of it. And then it really lacks emotional depth and character development. Um, but what I do appreciate is kind of for its singularity is the way it makes um, the, the argument for like peaceful coexistence with artificial intelligence. That isn't exactly the prevailing current sentiment. So, um, you know, it almost feels uh, blasphemous or at least radical. That they may have been written by AI. You never know. <laughs> yeah. That's their plot. Was. That's the, what they're <laughs> intending. Yes, Claudia. it kind of feels like that. Well, a- AI is not the real villain here. Um, and that, uh, you know, the whole idea that they're living copacetically, especially in a place that they call um, New Asia. Um, the acting is fine. There's some really good actors in it, like Ken Watanabe, um, Emma Chan, of course, John David Washington, uh, Allison Janney in kind of a villainous role. The American uh, military was was kind of the villain. Um, but anyway, yeah, not great. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the creator, John David Washington, starring Gareth Edwards, who did Rogue One and Godzilla directs and co-wrote the screenplay with Chris Weitz. It's rated PG-13 in Washington. Release. Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, animated action adventures starring the voices of Kristen Bell, James Marsden, and others. Cal Brunker, the director and co screenwriter, Charles. Like its predecessor, this is a great big commercial disguised as a not very good animated feature. Uh, the uh, meteor lands, the members of the Paw Patrol get these crystals that give them superpowers, and so they need all new uh, vehicles, which you can get in the toy stores. They get new costumes, which you can get in toy stores. Uh, Even the hero showing up in his pajamas, you can get those pajamas (laughs) with the same animals printed on them. And why wouldn't you get where we're going? (laughs) And there's a lot of talk about um, uh, Skye, who was the smallest pup. It was a runt of her litter. And even the smallest pup can make a difference. But 
behind all this cuteness and fuzziness and round-shaped characters, there is a corporate greed as cold and sharp as a scalpel. And although this is supposed to be designed for preschool kids, after about 40 minutes, the ones in the audience I was in was getting squirmy, as was I, although I didn't start running around the theater. And in the last... <laughs> that was the last film you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the, the climax where, of course, Sky is bravely defeating the enormous threat to Adventure City, uh, a lot of the kids were clearly scared. So I'm kind of curious as to just how carefully they aimed this at their audience. But there's nothing else for kids in theaters, so I assume parents will go to it. It is rated PG, interestingly enough, for a series that's aimed at preschoolers. Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, is the film. Cal Brunker, the director and co-screenwriter, based, of course, on the TV series. It's rated PG in wide release. Man on the Run, a documentary which uh, tells the story of corruption and betrayal following a mysterious business person and playboy as he masked Masterminds a scheme to exploit a sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia. The film is directed by Cassius Michael Kim. Wait, what do you think of Man on the Run? I think this is an unbelievably spectacular documentary. Uh, so uh, Cassius Michael Kim is a former ABC News and CNN documentarian. So he brings a tremendous amount of those skills, those, those journalistic documentary skills, to putting together this amazing story about the one. MDB scandal in Malaysia, which I knew next to nothing about, but it, it dwarfs uh, just about every other financial scandal of the past 20 years, 25 years. Uh, it, this created the creation of this sovereign wealth fund, which turned out to basically be a slush fund, which, among other things, ended up uh, funding the Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, the parties that this guy Joe uh, Lowe threw, he's kind of the mastermind of it, ingratiated himself with the corrupt prime minister, second second generation prime minister of Malaysia. And, the, you know, suddenly billions of dollars are disappearing into these elaborate parties, celebrities like like uh, Paris Hilton are being flown around the world and paid money to show up at these parties that he's throwing. And money is just being burned left and right, and it's the Malaysian people's money. It's like billions it's, of dollars. It's mm -hmm. billions. It is just an astonishing fraud. And I won't tell anybody where it goes, but it, it upsets you on multiple levels. And it is incredibly well made. It is such a skillful documentary because so much information hits you so quickly and it's very difficult to assimilate, but he makes sure you can do it. We're talking about the documentary Man on the Run, Claudia. Yeah, I agree completely with Wade. In fact, Leonardo DiCaprio should probably get a supporting actor credit, <laughs> even though this is a documentary, because he's name-checked so many times here. Um, it's I knew nothing about the 1MDB. I, I thought it was the IMDB thing when I first saw it. That's, <laughs> that's my, where my mind went. Um, but he's this kind of great Gatsby-like figure, Joe Lowe. And, um, yeah, I mean, he's partying with, with the likes of, you know, uh, uh, Paris Hilton, and then he's like b giving pink diamonds to um, who was it? Miranda, um, another big actress. Um, Isn't that one you're wearing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's so you know, and the irony of it being of the money going to the Wolf of Wall Street. And what I think the best thing about this to though, produce is, the film, yeah. yes, to produce the film. And I think all the details and plot threads, it's quite complicated. And I think he lays them out in this kind of really interesting way. It could almost make a true crime miniseries because it's so tautly constructed and so informative. And he gets in just all the interviews. Minutes. He gets yeah. all the interviews, except it, for it, from the 
stars, except, except Leonardo for, DiCaprio and Paris Hilton. Yes, he doesn't get the celebrities, but he, and Joe Lowe he doesn't get, but everyone yes. else. Yes, everyone well, Joe Lowe's else. on the run. So he gets yeah. the former prime minister to yes. talk about yes. this? Yes, yes, really? yes. Wow. And defend himself. Oh, it was Miranda Kerr. And the new Kerr. prime minister. He gets both prime ministers on the record. On the he gave yeah. pink diamonds and an acrylic grand pan- piano to Miranda Kerr, and she had to give it back. And then, of course, uh, Goldman Sachs had to give back a lot of money, too. Yeah. It was the biggest DOJ... Um, case, I think. It was the largest international corruption case in the history of the DOJ. Man on the Run is the documentary. Cassius Michael Kim is the director. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica and unrated. Fair Play, a mystery thriller that stars Phoebe Denever and uh, Alden Ehrenreich. It's written and directed by Chloe Dumont. Fair Play is rated R. Claudia. Well, this is, they call it neurotic thriller. I sound like I said neurotic, (laughs) erotic. I thought you said neurotic. I know, it sounded like neurotic. I've seen a lot of those, too. (laughs) Sometimes they're better than the erotic ones. It's a psychological thriller. Let's avoid those two words altogether. Um, And it's a premise that draws you in, almost tantalizingly, um, in in its sort of... um, examination of gender roles, toxic and punishing workplaces, ambition, power dynamics in relationships. Initially, it works, and then as it goes along, it devolves into something so extreme that it kind of comes off borderline silly and not believable. Um, the characters aren't really fully fleshed out, which is too bad, because they're actually, their acting is fine. Uh, Phoebe Dynavor from Bridgerton, Alden Ehrenreich, um, they're these up-and-coming uh, uh, young uh finance investment uh, at an investment firm finance uh, analysts and the way the story spins out and their sort of covert romance which initially starts off we find out that they're engaged but they're keeping all this undercover it's never made entirely clear whether this is a policy or just something that's kind of frowned upon Um, and things get very dark when she gets promoted and he doesn't Um, I think it raises some really interesting issues about the patriarchy about these all-boy clubs, the finance firms, um, but it doesn't. I wish it explored them with more subtlety and complexity because it kind of goes off the rails. And uh, clearly, the director is on the side of strong and flawed women being sort of held back by entitled and insecure men. That's interesting. Um, and some of the dialogue is good too. There's a slow-burning atmosphere, um, but then the last 20 minutes undercut it, and the characters don't feel credible. Um, and I really, I do think that the director is somebody to watch. And it is a tense and intriguing thriller, but it, it, it just kind of goes off the rails. Fair Play is rated R. Wade. Yeah, the, the script and the story, that's the problem. I mean, it is competently made, well-directed and acted and photographed and all of that stuff. But it, this is one of those movies where the thematics undermine the characters, where everyone just seems to be a, a piece on a chessboard being moved around to kind of make a point. And no one ever actually does anything that a real human being would do in that circumstance. Um, I mean, what do these two people see in each other? That's never made clear. They do have a chemistry, though. Well, they have a chemistry, but I mean, it's it, it's like they're the love of each other's lives at the beginning of the film, which is your first clue that this is not going to a good place. They're not going to walk off into the sunset together. And But it's never clear what they actually see in each other, other than that they just have chemistry. Well, that's not enough for me as a viewer. I, I need I need to know more about these people, where they came from, you know, what yeah. their flaws and their assets and they their attributes are. They seem to have are. no friends. And, and at a certain point, I just thought, you know, if you really want to be happy, just quit the job, go take that big check you got, open up a little bed and breakfast in Connecticut and be done with it. But they can't, because then the movie wouldn't be able to make all of its grandiose statements. And You know, you just I, ruined it. Yeah, I know. But, it, you know, I, and I kind of have a problem with all these movies, Boiler Room and Margin Call and even Wolf of Wall Street. They all kind of want to make these grand points about these horrible, horrible places that hedge funds are. 
Well, I don't, that doesn't draw me in. I don't want to be there. You know, I, there's not a second where they're in this hedge fund that I actually enjoy being in the room or I'm no. compelled by the environment. I, I, I loathe it. And so you dread most of this movie and you just you just want to walk out. It's not a pleasant sit. Fair Play is rated R. It starts streaming next week on Netflix. But for this week, you can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center, at the Town Center in Encino, and Lemley's NoHo in North Hollywood. Uh, the Kill Room is uh, in select theaters starring Uma Thurman. Uh, Nicole uh, Payon is the director, and Jonathan Jacobson wrote the screenplay. Wait, what do you think of The Kill Room? Yeah, Uma Thurman's also an executive producer on this. Oh, it so badly wants to be a Quentin Tarantino movie. It really does. It just it thinks, oh, we're going we're gonna to hit that sweet spot. We're even going to go get like old Quentin cast members and Uma and Sam Jackson, and it just isn't. Uh, you know, Uma Thurman runs a, an art gallery and she's she needs a, a way to keep it afloat because she's not running it very well and hey why not launder money for a hitman that we're gonna we're, he's just gonna make some horrible paintings and we'll use this hitman's horrible paintings as a way to launder mob money and then of course he becomes like a major artist and then there's the whole idea of how he makes the paintings which is really gruesome and um, it's supposed to be kind of funny and ironic but it's not really that funny and it's not really that ironic and everyone's just kind of treading water the Kill Room, Claudia. Yeah, it's pretty mediocre. Um, it's mildly entertaining, but the comedy is so broad where it should be like edgier and darker. Um, and it, you know, tries to skewer the pompousness of the art world. The result is pretty toothless. That's been done before. Has a strong cast, of course. And it is nice to see Emma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson back together after 30 years after Pulp Fiction, I guess. Um, but, and Jackson, I'd say, is easily the best thing about the movie. He gives this lively performance as the owner of a bagel place in Brooklyn, and he even speaks Yiddish which is fun. Um, he seems to be having fun in his role, which no one else seems to be doing quite as much. Um, yeah, there were, there's a potential for laughs here that didn't materialize. And totally. These kinds of films are very hard. to. I mean, that's yes. Tarantino's gift, right? Yes. yes, exactly. Dark humor and, yeah, and, and bringing in violence. And, yeah, this is just kind of, there's this, this running joke about this older art-collecting couple who find... The, the work by this guy they call him the bag man and that's used because he uses bags to kill people with and so he, he makes his art out of bloody bags and they find an aphrodisiac and they just keep this is a recurring gag and it's just not funny The Kill Room is the film starring Uma Thurman and Joe Magnello uh, the film is directed by Nicole Payon and it's rated R you can see it in select theaters coming up we'll hear about the Japanese animated film Sasaki and Miyano graduation. Also, the restoration of the film from 30 years ago. Wow, hard to believe it's been that long. Farewell, My Concubine, a Chen Kaiga film. We'll hear about that. And the re-education of Molly Singer. Those and more films are coming up. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle with our critics. We'll be back in just a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge.
It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Wade Major, Charles Solomon, and Claudia Puig. Next up, Sasaki and Miyano Graduation, an animated film directed by Shinji Ishihira. It's written by Yoshiko Nakamura. Charles, what did you think of Sasaki and Miyano Graduation? Uh, this is a follow-up to uh, what I thought was a rather interesting um, TV series of the same name, Sasaki and Miyano. It's an example of the very curious genre of BL, or boys' love, which are fantasy romances between lovely young men written by women for primarily a female audience. And they've been trying to adapt this to America uh, in things like Heartstoppers and um, Red, White, and Royal Blue. And what makes this kind of slight feature interesting is that it shows you the kind of scenes the Japanese know to put in to give the characters some depth that make you like them and make the characters more interesting that the Americans invariably leave out. In this case, at one point, uh, Miyano, who's a year younger than Sasaki, his senpai, his upperclassman, and Sasaki's older sister comes in bringing them snacks and says something about, oh, it's nice you have such a, a good friend at school. And her brother says, he's not my friend, he's my boyfriend. And she gets very upset and runs off to her boyfriends, and he's ready to kind of blow it off. But Miyano says, no, um, I don't want to make your life more difficult. And so they go and find the sister, and uh, he says, look, your brother means a lot to you, doesn't he? And she says, yes. And he says, well, he does to me too. So why don't we work together to make him happy? And it's, you know, not an earth-shattering moment, but it's a very warm moment and a believable one. And it gives a resonance to these characters that the Western attempts to adapt this just don't have. So uh, it's an interesting film, but kind of a specialized audience. It's in uh, Japanese language with subtitles. It's unrated. For what ages would you say it's, uh, it's best? Adolescents and teens. Uh, they're the ones who are the great consumers of, of the BL manga and uh, anime and even live action. Sasaki and Miyano graduation. The film is streaming on the Crunchyroll streaming service. Farewell, my concubine, uh, back in a 4K restoration for its 30th anniversary, a film starring Leslie Chung and Zhang Fengyi and Gong Li. Uh, the film is uh, rated R. Wade, take us back to Farewell, mm-hmm. my concubine. Uh, this is more than just a restoration. This is the first time the uncut film has ever been seen in the United States. We didn't see the uh, no, original. Harvey, no, Harvey Weinstein butchered it, as he did so many other films. Uh, no, I, I actually saw this in 1993 at the Cannes Film Festival where it was a co-winner of the Palme d'Or along with the piano. And that was this full version? That was the full version, just under three hours. It's two hours and 51 minutes. And um, it's one of the greatest films I've ever seen. And uh, I will say this, I, I actually did the math. In the last 33 years, I've seen about 7,000 movies. Wow. And I rate them all zero to 100. That's my that's how I keep track of, of what I think of them. And I've only given a 100 score to 10 films out of those 7,000. Wow. This is one of them. 
and it's a perfect film. It's a masterpiece. To be able to see it in its uncut version with the late Leslie Chung giving the performance of, of his career, Gong Li, never better, and Zhang Feng Yi, an extraordinary actor who's you know, not as well known as the other two. But um, you know, this is, this is a half century in the lives of two Peking opera uh, performers who are, whose lives and whose famous roles mirror each other in many uncomfortable ways. And it takes you through this unbelievably tumultuous period in Chinese history. It is it is spectacularly well shot. It is flawlessly made, and I would urge anyone and everyone to to go and see this in a theater. It is it is one of the great films of the past, uh, you know, three or four decades. I still remember the scenes of the Cultural Revolution. It's just seared into it's my brain. Burn from this burn film. into your soul. It's and it's just so powerful and so moving and so deep and so rich. Farewell, My Concubine is rated R, and you can see it in the 4K restoration full-length version at the New Art Theater in West Los Angeles. The comedy The Re-Education of Molly Singer stars Britt Robertson and Jamie Presley. Andy Palmer directed Tom M. Friedman and Kevin Haskin are the screenwriters. Claudia, what did you think of The Re-Education of Molly Singer? Uh, I feel like we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous here. <laughs> um, this is a week for unfunny comedies. It's This is this ultra-formulaic comedy with, you know, maybe a couple f- mildly funny lines. Um, it feels like a pale version, again, of, to bring up other movies, Never Been Kissed, Legally Blonde, Old School, with a jot of the new Jennifer Lawrence movie that came out last summer, No Hard Feelings. Um, you know, just the title, The Re-Education of, of Molly Singer, seems to... It imply that there's going to be some life lessons learned and there isn't any or a shift of perspective. <laughs> there's no comedy either. <laughs> I will say that she's pretty good, though. The lead actress, Britt Robertson, um, she gives it her all. And not that it deserves it, but she does. Wait, what did you think? I agree. Look, I really like Britt Robertson. I think she's a lovely actress. I And, you know, I love Jamie Presley, who's who plays her ruthless, you know, law school, law uh, law firm boss in this thing. But it look, yeah, it's Legally Blonde meets Animal House meets Never Been Kissed meets Back to School. There's a lot of Back to School in this. You know, it's just like, let's swap out Rodney Dangerfield and swap in Britt Robertson. And somehow we'll make that work. And, it, you know, you've seen every single piece of this movie before in dozens of other movies. So it, it, I guess the only enjoyment here is just kind of trying to remember, where did I see that first? Who did that part first? Where did that twist show up? I've seen that before. So you, you kind of, you know, can distract yourself from how kind of lame it is by just playing that that parlor game but it's it's not very good the re-education of molly singers rated r it's at the lumiere music hall theater in beverly hills the crime drama reptile is streaming on netflix it stars benicio del toro and justin timberlake eric bogosian is in the cast grant singer directed and co-wrote it claudia what did you think of the mystery reptile I kind of like this. I think it's a pretty effective murder mystery that is strong at the beginning. It starts off really well, and you have high hopes for it. Um, it's um, Benicio Del Toro co-wrote it, um, and he's always good. He's always believable, and now he's become kind of this... Well, he's played, he's played hardened cops before, but he's I think he's aged really nicely into this kind of role. It's, it's a pretty grim police procedural set in Maine in a, kind of a... It just the, the atmosphere is definitely there, kind of a moody atmosphere. It, it's a murder mystery. Justin Timberlake plays a realtor um, whose mother is played by Frances Fisher. Um, it takes a lot of twists and turns. It kind of feels like it's been influenced by Denis Villeneuve, um, you know, and who he worked with, Benicio Del Toro and Sicario. Um, 
so it has that kind of moody feel like prisoners um and it wants to be kind of a David Fincher style procedural. It's not that creepy and tense, but only David Fincher really can pull that off. Um, and at times it gets a little convoluted, but it's well acted and watchable. And it sounds like a decent sense of place in the film. A very good sense of place. Maine is an unusual place to set yeah. you know, a, a police But procedural. a beautiful place to uh, yes. do it. There is some beauty in the background, although this is not necessarily the most, even though it's like really beautiful houses, the, the realtors too, they kind of all look a bit tawdry. Eric Bogosian is really good, Michael Pitt. Um, and then and Ato Esando is one of the, is his partner as a police detective. It has a really oh, and Alicia Silverstone, who is actually right. probably better than we've seen and, in and a long time. And not clueless in this, I would assume. So. And not so clueless. There's a lot yeah. of clues here. Yeah, Bogosian is always so interesting to watch, and I I can't recall seeing him in the cast of one of our our films on Film Week in quite a while. You're right. Yeah, I don't know why, because he's so good. Yeah. Uh, Reptile is the film. It's streaming on Netflix, rated R. Grant Singer is the director, and he co-wrote it with Benjamin Brewer and Benicio Del Toro, the star of the film. Into the Weeds is a Canadian documentary that follows groundskeeper Dwayne Lee Johnson and his uh, fight legally against Monsanto. Uh, Johnson's case was the first to go to trial in a series of lawsuits involving tens of thousands of plaintiffs against the wheat killer Roundup. Uh, There was also an industrial counterpart, Ranger Pro. They went uh, to court claiming that those chemicals had caused cancers that they'd have. Uh, Jennifer Bachewell is the director of the documentary. Charles, what did you think of Into the Weeds? Well, they have an extremely sympathetic character in Johnson who is undergoing all these horrors from having been exposed to this chemical that they kept. And he tried to contact Monsanto when it got dumped on him. And they basically just blew him up and said, oh, don't worry about it. And of course, it's wildly carcinogenic. His skin is peeling away. He's uh, and other people are talking about, well, how did I get this cancer? The only thing I was ex- exposed to was Roundup. And Monsanto seems to have taken a leaf from the tobacco companies' books. You know, you lie, you obfuscate, you undercut science by lying about the sources or saying, well, this is still uncertain or we paid for this report that disagrees with it. Um, so that part of the film is very powerful. The problem is that this also rambles. There are a couple of episodes with people talking about the loss of insects from Roundup or uh, indigenous leaders in Canada talking about problems with the land that aren't integrated into the rest of the film. And if you were to cut it down a bit, I think it could tighten it and making it stronger because, again, Johnson is so sympathetic and the devastation of this chemical has caused is appalling and... You know, Monsanto was finally being called to to answer, at least in part, for the destruction they've wrought. It's in select theaters next Tuesday. The documentary Into the Weeds, Jennifer Bachewell is the director, and it's unrated. We also have the documentary about film producer Jeremy Thomas. Uh, The Storms of Jeremy Thomas is uh, the documentary. Wade, uh, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I I really love this. And it's it's not so much a documentary as is kind of an ethereal personal essay by the filmmaker uh, Mark Cousins, who is is giving you these very he's he's sharing in the narration his feelings about Jeremy Thomas while he accompanies Jerry Thomas on a road trip to the Cannes Film Festival and and sort of uh, is hanging with him and talking to him about his career. And, you know, Jeremy Thomas, who won, you know, the Academy Award for The Last Emperor, is a second generation 
royalty in the British entertainment industry. His father was a director. His uncle directed all the Carry On films. So, you know, he grew up in the industry and he has this abiding passion for movies that is not like American producers. He's a cinephile. He's not out there developing 40 films at a time and seeing which one sticks. He loves every movie he does and he has worked with Bertolucci and he's worked with Cronenberg and he works with auteurs and he makes these artful films and, and it's, it's almost like he's talking about his family when he tells you about the films. And there's something just deeply, deeply inspiring and infectious about that. So it's, no, it's not a comprehensive, you know, look at the man and his career, but it's a, it's a very soulful look at the man and his, and his filmography and very certain films in particular. And, uh, you know, if you love his work and if you love his, if you love that kind of filmmaking as I do, it's a, it's a wonderful trip. And speaking of producers, coming up a little bit later, we'll be talking with Carol Baum, producer of Father of the Bride and many other top films. She's written a terrific book about what it is to be a producer, the challenges involved, and what she's learned over the decades of her career in the business. She'll be with us shortly. The film that Wade was just telling us about, The Storms of Jeremy Thomas, Mark Cousins, the director, and it's at Limley's Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Well, we just lost Michael Gambon, uh, the tremendous British actor, of course, well-known for his role, a portrayal of Dumbledore in the eighth and final installment of the Harry Potter film series. We hear this scene of Michael Gambon as Dumbledore uh, giving a final lesson to Harry in a place that looks vaguely like King's Cross Station. Voldemort has the Elder Wand. True. And the snake's still alive. Yes. And I've nothing to kill it with. Help will always be given at Hogwarts, Harry, to those who ask for it. I've always prized myself on my ability to turn a phrase. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic, capable of both inflicting injury and remedying it. But I would, in this case, amend my original statement to this. Help would always be given at Hogwarts to those who deserve it. Michael Gambon, his publicist, released a statement. We're devastated to announce the loss of Sir Michael Gambon. Beloved husband and father, Michael died peacefully in hospital with his wife Anne and son Fergus at his bedside following a bout of pneumonia. Uh, born in Ireland, huge career with the National Theatre uh, alongside Laurence Olivier, who helped uh, to mentor him as well. Uh, I had a chance to interview him. Such a gentleman, Greg. I know you did too, Claudia. I did. And I felt it was such an honor. It was on the set of Harry Potter in England. And, um, you know, he's now I think he's so remembered for being Albus Dumbledore, but he had such an illustrious career beforehand. And I loved what he had to say about not wanting to, you know, he had to go step into the shoes of Richard Harris, who had passed away. And he did such a beautiful job. Yeah, Wade, your thoughts about Gambon? Uh, one of those actors who showed up. I mean, if you've if you've seen films over the last twenty years, he shows up everywhere. Everywhere. And, but we always forget because he he blends into the background. He blends into the cast so well. You forget that he was in The Insider. You know, you forget he was in Kevin Costner's Open Range. You know, you forget all these great parts that he shows up in because he's so effective. All right, we'll continue on Film Week with producer Carol Baum coming up. It's Film Week on L.A. It's 89.3. 
Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.